I'd like to invite you this evening to turn with me in God's Word to the book of Revelation. We'll turn to Revelation and we'll read two passages of Scripture from the book of Revelation and we'll read the whole of chapter 5 and then we'll move to Revelation 19 and sing, excuse me, read verses 11 through 16, beginning in Revelation chapter 5. Beginning in verse 1, Revelation chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll, written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, and the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen! And the elders fell down and worshipped. And then we'll move to Revelation chapter 19, beginning in verse 11. John says this in verse 11, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness He judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on His head are many diadems. And He has a name written that no one knows but Himself. And He is clothed in a robe dipped with blood, 
And the name by which He is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following Him on white horses. From His mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On His robe and on His thigh He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Here ends the reading of God's Word this evening. And then I'd like to invite you to turn with me in the Heidelberg Catechism to Lord's Day 19, which can be found on page 220 in the Forms and Prayers book in your pew. Lord's Day 19. Beginning in question 50. Why the next words and sits at the right hand of God? Christ ascended to heaven there to show that He is head of His church, the one through whom the Father governs all things. How does this glory of Christ our head benefit us? First, through His Holy Spirit, He pours out gifts from heaven upon us His members. Second, by His power, He defends us and preserves us from all enemies. How does Christ return to judge the living and the dead comfort you? In all distress and persecution, with uplifted head, I confidently await the very judge who has already offered Himself to the judgment of God in my place and removed the whole curse from me. Christ will cast all His enemies and mine into everlasting condemnation, but will take me and all His chosen ones to Himself into the joy and glory of heaven. My most dear friends, Where we last left off in our study of the Heidelberg Catechism's explanation of the life of Jesus Christ, He was ascending into heaven while His disciples on earth watched. Yet after the clouds in that Palestinian sky would have obscured Him there, His ascending into heaven, how high do you think He went? How far did Christ go? Did He ascend past the atmosphere? Past the moon? The stars? The galaxy? Where did Christ go? You see, the purpose of Lord's Day 19 in some ways is to actually answer that question. You see, from Lord's Days 11 through 19, we have been covering the birth the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ. And this is the final step of what we've been studying, which is called the exaltation of Christ. This is the cumulative, the crescendo moment, the highest part of His exaltation. Now, I know that here in this wonderful country in which we live, you do not have a king, but some of us do. 
I say that because my best friend is also here from Canada. And in a few months, or maybe it's even a year now, we will have a new king who will be installed as the king of England. He will also be the king of all the commonwealth. He will be my king. And the king's highest pinnacle moment is when he sits on the throne and is crowned king over his realm. The purpose of Lord's Day 19, as one commentator notes, is to reflect on the destination and the purpose of his ascension. The destination and purpose of his ascension. That he goes all the way to the heights, to the highest place, the highest throne of heaven. And he sits on that throne and is crowned, as we just sang, Lord of all. You see, the book that we're reading from this evening is called the book of Revelation. And we'd be well informed to remember the title of this book. If you flip to Revelation 1, John actually gives a title himself. I believe chapter 1, verse 1, where it says the revelation of Jesus Christ is John's original title. Because what he's writing about is the revelation, the apocalypsis in Greek, which means the appearing, or we might translate it as the unveiling of Jesus Christ. He wants to unveil something about Christ. But he's not unveiling what we already know. John has already written a Gospel. He's already written three epistles about Christ. He's revealing something new about Jesus. He unveils the height of His exaltation. You see, in this book of Revelation, Jesus is no longer a baby. He's no longer a carpenter's son. He's no longer on the cross. He's no longer in the tomb. But He has been crowned the King of Heaven. That's how He exists now. He is the center of all that happens in Heaven. He is the object of all worship and adoration in Heaven. He is the receiver of all praise and honor. And everything in Heaven is focused upon Him. He is King heaven. So our catechism in Lord's Day 19 wants to show us this exalted status of Christ. This kingly status. But it also wants to bring it to bear in our lives. You see, He ascends all the way to the throne. But we're told in the book of Revelation that that throne comes back down to earth. And He will establish His throne upon the earth to judge the living and the dead and to renew this world so that we can reign with Him forever. See, our theme, it's not in your bulletin, my apologies for that, is this. Christ ascends to the throne of heaven to make me partake of His glory. Christ ascends to the throne of heaven to make me share in His glory. I want to show you this in three points. The authority of Christ, the glory of Christ, and then the return of Christ. The authority, the glory, and the return of Christ. 
If you're still at Revelation 1, one thing I want to draw your attention to this evening is the author of the book of Revelation. We're told in Revelation 1 verse 4 that the author is John who is writing here to the seven churches that are in Asia. John, of course, is the disciple who wrote the Gospel of John. He is the disciple whom Jesus loved. We read in John's Gospel that he had such an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ that he would even recline on Jesus' breast as they ate. He was the only disciple who would be at the foot of the cross while his Lord was crucified. He was the disciple whom Jesus, while he was on the cross, said, take care of my mother. And here, around 95 A.D., He is the last of all the apostles. Church history tells us that it's likely that all of the apostles were likely martyred for their faith. Their lives were taken from Him. And now He writes this book we see in 1 verse 9 on the island called Patmos. He hasn't been exiled. Or, excuse me, He hasn't been martyred, but He has been Exile. Taken from the churches that he loves and exiled to a barren island in the midst of the Aegean Sea. See, one thing history teaches us is that around 95 A.D., the persecution of the church would have been incredibly intense at this time. Imagine the questions that would have been in this pastor's mind. Who will take care of my church? Who will be with my people? Who will help them as they struggle with persecution? Is the church destined for failure? The church maybe seemed at that time, along with John on the island of Patmos, destined for failure. Seeming like it would just fizzle out like the latest fad. I wonder if the question on John's mind could even have gone this far. Was Jesus all that He said He was? Was He really Lord, King, and Messiah? To allow these wicked things to take place. But the wonder of Revelation is that Christ reveals Himself. If we come to our chapter that we're looking at this evening, in Revelation 4 and 5, we see that part of the vision that Jesus gives to the Apostle John is He brings him to the very throne room of heaven. That's what chapter 4 is about. And then in chapter 5, we say He's standing in that very same throne room. The very same throne room that Isaiah had visited a thousand years earlier. But while Isaiah notices the robes of God, the angels... He notices the smoke and the temple. It says John notices verse 1, a scroll. Then I saw in the right hand of Him who is seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. Young children, if you're not aware this evening, a scroll is basically an ancient form of a book. What they would do is they would have these long pieces of paper. They think they could even be upwards of 60 feet where you would write upon the inside and if you wanted to read it, you'd have to unroll it. 
what we see about this scroll, what makes it special is, is it, that it is in the right hand of God. The right hand in the Bible always symbolizes power and dominance and sovereignty and authority. This is consistent, consistently the case throughout the Scriptures. And this is even highlighted in our catechism question when it asks, what does it mean when He ascends and sits at the right hand of God? That place of authority and dominance. You see, John in the throne room is taken to the highest place. He's seeing the most important person, God, and His most important hand. And in His hand is a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. Remember that the book of Revelation is a vision. It's symbolic. So what does the scroll symbolize? I don't think we need to doubt what the scroll represents. You see, Daniel chapter 12 says this. He says, You, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the end of time. The scroll represents God's eternal plans for the world. It's His purpose for the universe. In the scroll is God's judgment for sins, but also His salvation for the church. In the scroll is God's defeating of Satan and the vindication of the righteous. See, if I may quote myself from a sermon many moons ago, when I preached on this before, the scroll is not only about judgment or our inheritance in the kingdom, but rather it contains the divine announcement and the consummation of all human history. It contains how things end for all people. It contains the judgment of the world and the rewards of the saint. And in the scroll is the guarantee of the survival of the church. When we say all things rest in God's hand, that's what this is symbolizing. Everything in this universe rests in the palm of God's hand. Here's the problem. We read in the rest of the chapter, an angel cries out in verse 2, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Who can bring God's plan to fruition? And it's not a rhetorical question. The angel is asking, is there anyone worthy to open this scroll? He's not just speaking to John or the elders or the angels. Look at verse 3. He says, is there anyone in heaven who is worthy? All people on earth, is there anyone worthy? Under the earth, that's referring to people who have died. Is there anyone worthy? And notice the answer in verse 3. No one was able to open the book or even look into it. What's John saying here? Not one created being 
was found worthy to open the scroll. Not even the best of us was found worthy to open the scroll of God and bring God's plans to fruition. Put yourself in John's shoes for a moment. All of creation is standing in front of God and no one is worthy. Could you imagine the stillness in heaven? Could you imagine the motionlessness, the speechlessness? Not one of us is able to open the scroll. No one has the authority to even put an eyeball on the scroll. After the angel proclaims who is worthy, all of creation hangs their head in shame. If the scroll is not opened, what's implied here is that God has failed. Jesus' death would have been for nothing. The church would be destined to fail. Satan is one. This is why John responds so emotionally in verse 4. I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. He is expressing what we in our Reformed tradition call total depravity. That if salvation is up to us, we fail abysmally. That there is nobody in and among us who is worthy to go to the throne of God and fulfill His plans for this world. But isn't verse 5 one of the greatest passages in the Scriptures. Weep no more. Stop crying. Get a hold of yourself. There is someone worthy. Behold the Lion of the tribe of Judah. The Root of David has conquered so that He can open the scroll and its seven seals. There is one who has overcome. There is one with authority so as to open the book. The Lion of the tribe of Judah. The Root of David. The Messiah. He is using two Old Testament terms to describe Jesus Christ. He is the lion from Genesis 49. And He is the root from Isaiah 11, verse 10. And these terms both express His power and His kingliness that He has conquered. He has overcome. He is triumphant over all things that caused us to fail. Jesus has defeated this world. 
He has defeated sin. He has defeated death. He has defeated Satan and his demons. He has overcome evil. He has triumphed over all. He is worthy. He hears the name of His Messiah. But as he looks more closely, he doesn't see a lion or a king but a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Standing on the very throne of God. Jesus' triumph is in His death. He overcomes evil by dying upon the cross and he gets to the throne and even though it says standing we understand it as we mentioned in our catechism that he sits down at the very right hand of God what John is describing is the destination of Christ's ascension where did he go after he rose up from the earth and was obscured by the clouds. He didn't go to the moon. He didn't go to the sun. He didn't go to the stratosphere, the atmosphere. He went to heaven. He went to the very throne room of God. To His rightful place at the throne of God. And He took the scroll as the executor of all human history. He is worthy He has the authority to take the scroll, to break its seals, and to bring God's plan to fruition. Through Christ, the Father will govern all things. Once I read a book in seminary, I didn't remember much of it, but it said this, The dust of earth is on the throne of heaven. He took our humanity. He took something earthly and went all the way to heaven. Therefore, says the writer of Hebrews, we can come boldly into the presence of God. We can come to the very place where we are not worthy. Where we feel our unworthiness. And we can go like the elders, and throw our crowns and worship Him because He is worthy. And so question 51 of our catechism turns to meditate on the glory of Christ. And there may not be a more glorious description than what's read, what we read in the last seven verses of Revelation 5. You see, not only does Christ sit at the right hand of God as the Lamb slain, but we read in this passage that this Lamb who bears the marks of His death, He is still standing. He says, I have seen a Lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. John mentions horns 
and eyes. I want us to first look at the eyes. The seven eyes of the Lamb. Which are the seven spirits of God. You see, the Catechism points out that the glory of Christ is that through His Holy Spirit, He pours out gifts from heaven upon us. As John sees that Lamb standing upon the throne, he notices that it has seven eyes. That is that the Lamb is doing something. The Lamb is sending forth its Spirit into all the earth. That in heaven, He stands continually sending out His Spirit to the church. One thing that we don't see in our English Bibles is that the word standing is actually in what we call in Greek the perfect tense. I know you don't know Greek, but it's important that you know this. Because perfect means it starts somewhere, but it's ongoing. It never ends. It has continuous action. That the Lamb is standing and remains standing. That Jesus is still doing His work. And His work is that He sends, verse 6, His Spirit out into all the earth. He pours out His Spirit on our hearts that He might convert us. That He might give us the gifts of the Spirit. That He might help us and assist us in our work on earth. That He might aid our minds and suppress the sins of our hearts. He is still doing His work. Building His church. Ruling and active in the government of His kingdom. But John also notices the Lamb's strength. He is said to have seven horns. If you've ever spent any time around a bull, a male cow, you know that its strength, its power to do damage, is localized in its horns. That's where we get the saying, right? Don't mess with the bull, you'll get the horns. But this lamb is said to have seven horns. The number seven throughout the book of Revelation represents wholeness or completion. That is, His kingly power is perfect. Even though He is slain, He is still the One who has all the fullness of power and sovereignty. The Catechism says, this is Christ's glory. This is the glory of Christ. That He does these things for us. I want to pause for one moment and reflect on His glory. Because in in Revelation 5, verse 7, we see the most dramatic and powerful moment that's ever taken place. And I don't say that facetiously. And he went, verse 7, and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. The challenge of who is worthy is met in the glory of Christ. Who is worthy? Christ is worthy. 
He is worthy to take the book. He is worthy to break its seals. He is worthy to execute judgment. The Lion and the Lamb, the King and the Servant, stand in heaven to save sinners. And look at what these verses say when He takes that scroll. It says, verses 8 and 10, that the elders fall down and worship Him. Verses 11-12, through then all of heaven falls down and worships Him. Verses 13 and 14, then all of creation falls down and worships Him. They worship Him. As I read this passage, what I'm reminded of is even as we were just singing, crown Him, or excuse me, I'll hail the power of Jesus' name. How music so moves the soul, doesn't it? I remember once, Lisa and I were listening to some music, and I was so deeply moved. I could almost weep. It is the most effective way to convey how you feel. I tell you today, when we stand in heaven before Christ and we see Him seated on His throne, crowned with glory and honor and power, you will be deeply moved. So moved, says John, that all of creation, even the things on earth and in the sea, fall on their faces and sing to Him who sits on the throne. It will touch us to our core because we are singing praises to the only one who is worthy. Through these symbols, John is describing what I call the coronation of Christ. With all the pomp and circumstance, with all the pageantry, he walks the aisle, he takes his rightful place, and they crown him Lord of all. That's the height of his exaltation. But our catechism says that's not the end of his exaltation. You see, this evening we want to also meditate for a moment on the return of Christ. So if you have your Bibles open, turn with me to Revelation 19. As we progress closer towards the end of the vision of John's book, vision of Christ, excuse me, in the book of Revelation. I think we read here in verse 11 that John is now on earth in this vision because he says that heaven opens up. He says on that last day, heaven will open and a rider on a white horse named Faithful and True will descend to earth to judge and to make war. Our catechism picks up on this in the Recognition of Christ's return in question 52. He will return. 
He has gone to heaven. He is seated on the throne, but He has gone there to return. To come back to earth. But it says in question 52 that when He returns, there will be only two outcomes. Look at what the Catechism says. It says if you are His enemy, you will be cast into everlasting condemnation but His chosen ones He will take with Him to the joy of heaven. You see, what's being described in Revelation 19 is complete and utter judgment for Christ's enemies. Look with me very briefly at this passage. We see in verse 13, it says that in Christ's return, He will be clothed in the blood of His enemies. In verse 14, it says the armies of heaven will follow their leader. Out of his mouth will come a sharp sword to strike down the nations. Verse 15 says he will rule with a rod of iron, which is the fulfillment of Psalm 2, which speaks of dashing his enemies like a piece of pottery. The vision gets even more horrific when it says he will tread the winepress. That is, he will stomp down those who are evil in the fury of the wrath of God. It is symbolically telling us that there is everlasting condemnation for those who reject Christ. That for those who reject Christ, it will be the worst outcome. It could be the worst thing we could ever think of that will take place. But it's not the only thing the Bible stresses when we consider the return of Christ. You see, when the Bible talks about the return of Christ, I think it mostly talks about it as the purpose of the salvation and renewal of His people. Of this created world. And so the Bible speaks of the return of Christ, get this, as something to be longed for. Okay, reread Revelation 19:11 through 16. Clothed in the blood of his enemies, armies from heaven following their leader, pouring out of heaven upon earth, sharp sword, rod of iron, treading down the, the fury of the wrath. How can that be something to be longed for? Look at what our catechism says. I confidently await the very judge who has already offered Himself to the judgment of God. The Christian doesn't need to fear Revelation 19. You don't need to fear Christ being covered in the blood of His enemies, the armies of heaven, the rod of iron, the sharp sword, because Christ has borne the judgment for you and for me. He has been covered in His own blood. On the cross, He was dashed like pottery. He was tread down in the winepress of God's fury. And the catechism says, He did it for me. This is what comforts me. This is why I look forward to Christ coming. Because He has borne the very judgment that will be poured out on that day. For me. 
And so when He comes, and the very throne of heaven is set down upon the earth, and all of the nations, and all of the peoples will gather before Him, we are told, because Christ was judged in my place, the verdict is already assured. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Because Christ was humbled and exalted for me. Congregation, what we need to see in conclusion this evening. Christ has ascended all the way into heaven, even to the very throne of God itself. He has ascended all the way to the top. To the highest heavens. But He will not remain there. He has ascended to heaven that He will return as the judge of all the earth. The judge of evil. But also the friend of sinners who trust in Him to make us partakers of His glory. Amen. Let's pray. Merciful God, we do give You thanks for Christ who was not only humbled for me, went to the cross for me, to die for me, but was also raised from the dead for me, who ascended into heaven for me, who sitteth at the right hand of God for me, and will come again from heaven and judge this earth to save me, to perfect me, and all who would ever believe. Father, we ask that You would be pleased to bring us soon to that day where Christ will descend from heaven with the shout of an archangel and we will be taken up with Him to rule on earth for all of eternity. We ask, merciful God, that You would do it for His sake, for our good and Your glory, we pray in Christ's name.